Hey folks, this is Matthew Kraus, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, I get a chance to sit down and talk with David Northrup. After spending nine years drumming for Travis Tritt and building a strong reputation for himself, David now continues to stay busy with the Oak Ridge Boys. David also keeps a regular schedule of drum clinics and recording sessions throughout the year. Add to all this, the responsibility of raising a family makes David a very busy man. I I just want to thank him for taking the time to share with us the wisdom that he's gained and the lessons he's learned through the peaks and valleys of his career. As always, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can see pictures of David that we've included and all the other interviews that we've done. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We also have a YouTube page where we're including new videos all the time. We're very excited that we've been asked to get involved with the Nashville Drummers Jam. Uh, For those of you who don't know, please go to Nashville Drummers Jam on Facebook. Monday, December 14th is the show here in Nashville at the Exit Inn. I think I'm supposed to hit record. Uh, Actually, that's recording that. Oh, hey. (laughs) We were talking about... To, to, to up to speed here, we we're talking about the Greg Bissonette clinic and how entertaining and, and sometimes funny he can be with his voices and stuff like that. And the few uh, interviews I've had with players that do clinics on a regular basis mm-hmm. talk about the idea that part of it has to be entertaining. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's the educational component. But, you know, sometimes people are there to be entertained. And I know you do that a lot. When I was mm-hmm. kind of doing some more research on you, um, the YouTube videos and, and uh, the clinics, it was awesome. Yeah, is, there a, is there a thing that you do? Is there like a formula that, that you use when you do <clears throat> clinics? No. At, at first, I had a whole uh, printouted format that I would try to follow. Yeah. And I found that. Generally, what takes place is I allow the Q&A, the question and answer thing, to, to take uh, control of the flow of yeah. the clinic. There's certain things that I start with and I talk about and I perform along with tracks and whatnot. But I think the most, the most important thing, at least in, in, in my experience, is just to be genuine and offer good, honest, solid advice, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think when you do that, people feel connected right with you you know and so if the questions dictate the direction of the clinic it's going to be unique to that group of people yeah absolutely right right yeah so it's it's always going to be based on a lot of time demographic as far as you know if i'm doing a college clinic at a university obviously it's going to be uh a little bit more sophisticated if you will Mm -hmm. if i doing a music store clinic and there's a broader uh, age bracket, then you know I have to I have to address that too, you know, so everybody can kind of get something from it. You're doing the theme to Sesame Street, yeah, as tracks, sure, sure, yeah, <laughs> whatever it takes. Um, guys, here's the Wiggles. Who loves yeah. the Wiggles? Um, yeah. So what's going on with you now? The, uh, what's who are you out with now? Who are you out with? Uh, the Oak Ridge Boys. I've been touring with them for about a year and a half now, and it's been a blast. And I saw you, it seemed like a year and a half ago. Yeah. At yeah. the Strawberry Fest. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. must have been a really new thing. Yeah, it was. I had, that was, I think, February or March, and I had just got the gig. Okay. Um, 
uh, Scotty Simpson, great, great bass player. Um, he and I toured together with Travis Tritt for, yeah. for nine years. I, mm-hmm. I was with Travis from 2000 to 2009. And Scotty had got the gig a year before me and uh, had given me a call at one point and said, you know, they're thinking about making a change in the drum chair position. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested? And I thought, well, you know, an opportunity to play with him again would be great because we're, you know, you know how the bass and the drum relationship yeah. is not only as musicians, but generally, you know, there's a camaraderie there. Right. And, right. And he and I were just, you know, so tight with the Travis thing, the Travis gigs for so long. So I didn't think much of it. And then six months later, when they actually did make the change, he called me and out of the blue and everything went down so fast. You know, I was just offered the gig, which was really nice. Yeah. Uh, and um, at first, I was really reluctant because they work so much, and okay. I didn't. And, and at that I was point, I ask why. Yeah, I was at uh, <clears throat> I was at a point where I was teaching in town, and I was working with Connie Smith, yeah. Opry, just right. an amazing experience. And I was really trying to stay t- in town more and do more sessions and, and that that sort of that sort of thing. Um. So I was a little reluctant, and then you know they started talking to me about what they offer business-wise, uh, financially. It's it's ridiculous um, because they work so much, and then they offer yeah. health insurance, which is what? insane. Yeah, health insurance for my own family. Yeah. Okay. So, and then you know there's <laughs> Christmas bonuses and all this other stuff, and I'm like, y- are you are you kidding me? Yeah. So it was sort of like, if I don't take this gig, I'm an idiot. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and and not that it's all about dollars and cents, but at my point in my career, you know, right. I have a family. Right. Right. And it it uh, it offered us the opportunity for my wife to stay home full time because it had insurance. Yeah. And because they work so much, you know, this is probably the best financial gig I've ever had. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I I laugh about it because, you know, my bosses are, you know, in their 60s and 70s yeah. and and they pay probably as good if if not better than some of the current big country acts yeah you know and that's just because they like and appreciate the people that they hire and they want them to stay around well i can say if i could interject here that when i saw you at the strawberry fest i was there for the week with my group playing in one of the tents Mm -hmm. with other groups and so every day we could go over and see who was playing and it was, uh, got a chance to see uh, some of Easton Corbin with mm. David Black playing drums, uh, so some new artists and some other, uh, just all over the map. And so I had never seen the Oak Ridge Boys. And uh, the band was incredible. You guys were killing it. Yeah. I, I was like, you four guys up front, could you move yeah, a little bit? It's I, really I, an exceptional band. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to your bosses. Yeah. But, man, you guys were just incredible. And I was like, holy moly. And the name escapes me of the drummer I was playing with down there, uh, uh, the other drummer in the band that I was playing with, um, who's a, who, who knew you. Oh, David Hughes. David Hughes, sweetheart, great mm-hmm. drummer. Great friend. Um, yep, it great was drummer. fun to hang with him uh, and get to know him. And he brought me backstage, and we kind of – that, that's I think that's where I formally met you. Yeah. Um, and then I remember there was another time I saw you with Travis, and uh, the group Savannah Jack opened up for you guys, 
and it was probably around 2009 or something. Yeah, it could have been. It was outside. It was extremely hot. I oh, almost right. passed out. Wow. And um, you offered to buy my snare drum. It was a Gretsch copper six and a half by 14. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't sell it? I did. No. I did. No kidding. How much do you want for that snare drum? <laughs> it, pro- it probably sounded amazing. That's yeah. probably why. <laughs> and I, I was, I, I, if I, if the heat stroke was real, I, I might have taken you up on the offer. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so I, I did recall that. I was like, you know, I have seen David a couple times. And then we had some mutual friends just yeah. being Nashville, being that, that it was. But anyways, my long, uh, my point is it, it sounded great. Oh, thank I just you. couldn't stop watching you guys play. It's, Man, it was I, really good. We're, I'm really fortunate because, you know, everybody is just a smoking player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone's seasoned pro, so they just do the gig. There's no drama. That's great. You know, it's just go to work. Everyone's grateful that they still get to play for a living. Mm-hmm. So there's that appreciation factor. There's no ego. There's no attitude mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Everyone just does their job. Right, it's right. The, probably the coolest gig I've ever had. Okay. You know? Well, let me ask you this. <clears throat> I mean, I know you said when they first approached you, you weren't sure. Well, was there still some? I mean, I, I I can guess why, but was there still after they talked money and insurance and all those important things that are necessary when you have a family and you're doing all these things? But was there something else that's still in the back of your mind? Is this the right thing, or was it just like I got to do this? Yeah, I I wasn't sure because of the time that it was going to require for me to be away from home. And to, to, to just give you an example. The most I ever worked with Travis Tritt in the nine years that I was with him, I think the first full year of touring in 2001, we did maybe 101 shows. Mm -hmm. And that was with TV stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after that, we went from 101 maybe down to 60 or 70. Okay. So it was probably the best part-time job you could have. And it it paid very well. There was a few years where we were on salary, so we were getting paid regardless of when we worked. Right. Um, and that afforded me the opportunity to be in town more, to do sessions, mm-hmm. to do clinics while I was on, ro- on the road and when I was in town booking s- stuff independently. And then uh, I sort of got into producing, not by – just it sort of happened, you know, yeah. just, just from experience yeah. of doing a lot of session work. Uh, wasn't anything that I ever set out to do. So that was uh, a really cool few years of of a lot of opportunity and uh, stylistically being able to do a lot of different stuff, yeah. you know. Uh, so when I found out the amount of touring dates they did, I thought, you know, I don't know if I could do that. It's right. such such a grind. Um and, you know, I, then I did the math and I was like, wow, this, this would be like financially just a, a huge blessing for my family, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, you know, I talked with my wife a lot. And we prayed about it, you know, because, you know, that's what we do. We want to make sure that we're where we're supposed to be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the opportunity for her to be able to be home right. with the kids right. for us is a huge luxury. Right. You know, uh, uh, and, you know, to have one of us around all the time, at least one of us, bringing up the kids is, is super important. 
Yeah. You know, so that made sense in the fact that, you know, she has a really great job. And if she worked and I worked as much as I'm working with the Oaks, you know, financially, it'd be like, holy crap, it would be amazing. But that's really not what we're about. You know, who would be raising our kids? And and, and you are in a similar situation as I am. Uh, two boys. Mine are 10 and 13. Yours are 13 and 18? Uh, 12 and 18, yep. 12 and 18. Matthew and Miles. Yeah. Okay. So that time goes by. Mm. 13 years have, has flown by for Absol- me. Absolutely. And so I know for you, you've seen it. Mm-hmm. 18, is he gone next year? <laughs> yeah, he'll be graduating. Hopefully not too far. You know, we're hopefully going to keep him local. When he goes to college, that's yeah. that's the plan, anyways. Yeah. You know. So that that is a short window of time, mm. and mm-hmm. so whatever it takes, it's it's almost like uh, the standard of living. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not what you've got; it's 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 experiencing that. And this is the time that you've got your kids, because after that, yeah, they're out doing their own thing. That's, that's amazing. So she's not working; she's she works part time, one day a week. Uh, she's a licensed optician, so. Um, she works just one day a week to keep her foot in the door at her her work and uh she has to do what's called continuing education hours each year to keep her license um so um that's good for us Uh, and we work that out you know schedule wise and the the boys are older so it's a little easier right Um, right mm -hmm. uh yeah, that, that, that works. When I was traveling a lot, when my boys were really small, that was that was tough. Oh, that yeah, was tough. Now they're they're, you know, they get up and <clears throat> make their own breakfast and yeah, that's the door. And beautiful thing. You're huh? just like a little independent there. Yeah, right. Very very much so. Just by necessity. I noticed on the uh, the Oak Ridge Boys schedule, uh, there's a theater mm. uh, that they play. Yes. And, um, Missouri Branson and Branson yep does that help uh the touring are you able to bring your family out there or at least your wife yeah that's a great question um last year was the first time obviously I was doing a lot of those theater dates and it's generally in the fall I think we do 30 dates throughout the year there it's the Oak Ridge Boys Theater Right. Which that's that's helpful. When they found that theater, they thought we should play here. Yeah. It's got our name on it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a a, like a, fit. A, a a deal worked out with obviously the theater and they use their name and promote it and whatnot. Um, during fall break last year, we're up there. We're generally up there from Tuesday to Thursday. We'll do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Go from Branson to a Friday, Saturday gig, maybe a Sunday gig. Mm-hmm. Come back into town Monday yeah. for a few hours and then leave Monday night and go back to Branson. Okay. And, you know, at first I thought that was going to become kind of a grind, but I'm sort of used to it. You know, everyone has their own space. They take care of us. Everyone has their own room. So there's there's that. But during uh, fall break last year, we drove up as a family and uh, – you know, there's a lot of things to do up there. There's a big uh, theme park. We went to the theme park yeah, during the day. Yeah. Uh, we went to another place that had go-karts. So we just basically had family vacation during the day, and then Dad went to work at night. 
right. at the theater playing drums. I mean, how right. what a bummer, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it was really cool. So that that helps out. The other really awesome thing about the Oaks gig that I've never experienced in any other situation is they're so family oriented that mm. they allow family members if there's a short run of dates, if you want to bring your your kids out because there's room on the bus, yeah. you can have family yeah. out there, yeah. which is so cool. With yeah. with other gigs, that that was never even a consideration. Right. So, you know, my boys on occasion, if we just have uh, a Friday-Saturday gig or a Saturday-Sunday gig, mm-hmm. um, they can come out because there's some extra bunks, and they come hang on the bus and, you know, sit and lay in the bunk They've and watch DVDs. Yeah, right. so it's, experience. you know, and, and the important thing, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, and I think it'll mean more to our children when they're older, but they see dad loving what he does for a living. Yes. And knowing that it's a possibility that yes. if you really work hard and pursue something that you're passionate about, that you were born to do, yeah. that your quality of life is, you know, amazing. Right. right. It's not about getting rich. Obviously, if I wanted to get rich, I would have, you know, <laughs> chose a different profession. And, you know. Podcast. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or. <laughs> You know, growing up reading Modern Drummer magazine, you see all those ads and, you know, endorsement ads. And you say, man, that guy's got to be rich. Yeah. You know, that guy's got to be this. Well, if you're in a band, sure, you're probably loaded. But if you're a side man, you know, that's not the reality of it. Yeah. You don't right. do it for the money. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Um, I also think about all the time I could have saved by knowing I could have said the Oaks and not the Oak Ridge Boys. I've added two more syllables to that. Oh, my But gosh. I've learned today yeah. that... The Oaks. The Oaks. I, I well, got so much more extra time on my hands. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or you can abbreviate ORBS when I'm, you know, texting somebody or, or emailing them. <laughs> you know. Um, those. How long have those guys been around? I mean, when did they start? Because insane. Forty-two years. This is their forty-second wow. year. Um, so that's I think. Nineteen seventy-four. Yeah, seventy seventy-three, seventy-four of of this. You know. Uh, culmination of guys these four guys the oaks okay. have actually been around the oakridge boys have been around since the 40s obviously not these guys okay. and there's a great history about them they used to be the uh, tennessee clod hoppers or the georgia georgia clod hoppers okay and they were a gospel quartet in an oak ridge uh during world war ii the manhattan project right. when they were they were right. building the atomic bomb they were allowed to come in on the weekends and entertain those people that were working on that project, which, you know, no one could go in and out yeah, except for yeah. them. So uh, because of their popularity of going there, they changed the name from the Georgia Clodhoppers to the Oak Ridge, yeah, Boys, Oak Ridge Boys, which was a good move. Yeah. And, and do you guys <laughs> ever play any of those old songs or say, yeah. something from yeah. the original group and some of the gospel stuff yeah in fact their latest cd is uh, a, a gospel album of all the old traditional hymns wow they've never great. done that yeah so it's kind of interesting and we do a few of those in the show yeah. i uh grew up in upstate new york um uh, Syracuse, New York area, a small town outside called Chittenango. Mm-hmm. Uh, started playing in 1980, so I've been doing it for 35 years. Wow. Um, and uh, played all through school and was, you know, the big fish in the little pond. I didn't really work too hard at it, and I, I had other interests. I was involved in sports. 
Um, and it wasn't until I went uh, to my first year of college for something completely different that I realized that music was what I wanted to do. Yeah, so yeah. I uh, left college and started studying privately with uh, some great local uh, drummers. Uh, one was Frank Briggs, who lives out in L.A., monster drummer. Um, he teaches. He's got a uh, an online drum. It's called the Drum School. Okay. Uh, online uh, school. So I studied with Frank, and Frank was a really valuable uh, asset to my career. Not only just from studying with him, but he was a pers- is a personal friend, and in staying in contact throughout my whole career, he's always given me great advice. You know, music, business advice, and then life advice. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, I also studied with a great, great drummer named Wilby Fletcher, a uh, great jazz drummer. Um, so, you know, I, I did sort of a different road as far as uh, my career. I didn't go to music school. I just really studied with a lot of different players and practiced a lot. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, school of hard knocks, I guess. Sure. If, sure. if you will. Um, ended up moving to Central Florida for a few years. Uh, studied down there, had a great opportunity uh, to work with a guitarist named Les Dudek. Yeah. Um, and uh, worked on an album with uh, Jeff Picaro. After Jeff Picaro passed away, I, mm-hmm. I got called in to yeah, finish Yeah, tell me the, about that. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. Um, I just happened to be playing a club on an off night in uh, Lakeland, Florida, of all places, and he happened to just come in and saw the band play and got up and sat in, and we were playing this groove. It was like the halftime shuffle thing. Yeah. And he immediately turned around and looked at me, and I was like, oh, gosh, well, either he's digging this or he really thinks I stink. Well, well, who was this? This was This was Les Dudek, yeah. Okay. Um, And we just ended up uh, sitting down at the end of the night and talked, and kind of hit it off. And I had known about him. I didn't know to the extent of all the things that he had done. He was, And I have to admit, I'm not familiar with, with him. He, uh, the f- I think the first claim to fame that he had was he actually played the guitar solo on Ramblin' Man. Oh, he wow. was like 19, something really young yeah. like that. Everyone, everyone thought it was Dickie Betts, but it was actually less. Okay. And then he went on to play with Steve Miller and Boss Gags and then got a solo career. Uh, and on CBS and put out some great records. You know, one of those guys where just was so close to becoming a household name, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but just great musician records. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cream of the Crop, uh, Gary Malibur, Dave Hungate played on oh, wow. Carmine Apice, mm-hmm. Picaro, uh, David Page, um, uh, just, uh, just, just Nash or uh, LA who, who's who of, of players right, back right. then. Um, so anyways, I had a chance to, to work with him, and that was a huge education. You know, uh, I was in my early 20s, and he had just moved back from L.A. to Central Florida. And um, I learned so much about what the drummer's role, and, and him and Jeff Picaro were, were very good friends uh, in the early 70s, okay. uh, just before Toto actually you oh, know, wow. uh, formed or became you know, popular and got their deal. They were both on the same label, CBS. Gotcha. Um, so it was really uh, somewhat surreal, you know, to sit and, and have a, a perspective from him. 
And do you remember some of the things that he advised? Yeah, you know, he talked about how Jeff played in phrasings. Everything was was in phrasings where, you know, we would evaluate some of his tracks. And he said, you know, see how he's lifting up the hi-hat at the end of these these four bars? He's playing in a phrase. He's ending that phrase. Or he picked the hi-hat up uh, to introduce another phrase, not necessarily doing a fill. But he def, you know, in studying Jeff's playing, not all the time, but a great deal of the time, he'd play in four or eight bar phrases. Yeah. And he would just do just little tasteful hi-hat things or just small minute things, which, you know, we know now as drummers. Sure. But he would play in those phrasings just to be able to introduce different sections um, subtly. Subtly, very subtly. And for a young 20-year-old kid... You know, I was doing a lot of that, just mimicking his playing, but not knowing the reasoning behind all that. Mm-hmm. So that was real eye-opening. Um, and the other cool thing that during the sessions that I worked with uh, with on that record it was called uh, Deeper Shades of Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Les about Jeff's equipment. And, um, you know, Jeff endorsed Pearl Drums. So I I just assumed that he used Pearl on the uh, on the record. And he's like, no, man. He showed me some pictures. We well, had this Gretsch kit. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I was like, wow. That was the first time my eyes sort of opened up. All the time that I was really listening to him on all the different records that he played on, and the sound that I was gravitating to wasn't Pearl. Which you know, I love Pearl drums, right. and I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Pearl drums. It was in fact Gretsch. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that's p- primarily the reason why I play Gretsch drums now yeah. was the sound. Uh, and not only him, you know, it's like uh, uh, all the early J.R. Robinson stuff that he did with Michael Jackson. Those are Gretsch drums. Right. Um, you know, Steve Ferrone, um, Vinny, even when he was using right. Yamaha drums. Which and I love Yamaha drums. Well, you know? and, and and that's the thing I think, uh, and we talked about this before, where technology is getting to the point where the playing field is is being leveled in many ways, mm-hmm. um, and the way the Japanese were making drums and marketing oh. drums had its appeal, and it's and it worked very well. Uh, certain drums, and especially in this era in the seventies and eighties, oh yeah, I think you had. A certain thing that you could only get from manufacturers like Gretsch mm-hmm. or Ludwig, and still to this day, for yeah. sure. But it wasn't a surprise to me to find out that Vinny was using Gretsch in the studio when he yeah. was endorsed by Yamaha, and then he endorses Gretsch, and then you know, so it and changes yeah. Yeah. all over. And you can hear. I did a session a couple years ago. I walked in, and there was a Pearl kit. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it sounded incredible. Oh, yeah. For that room, it was the house kit, and we were going to do a whole record, and I thought, well, I'll check out the house kit and then see if I want to bring my Gretches in. Boom, boom. Nope, this is great. Yeah. This is great. (laughs) And it sounded just incredible. But um, I get it, you know, uh, why at that time. So was there... uh, on the record, Jeff had played some of the tracks? He had played um, all the tracks, and um, 
the album didn't get finished because Dudek got called out on the road with Stevie Nicks. So we put the record on the back burner. And when he was finally ready to finish the record, there was a, a title cut that he had to have cut. Uh, he had to track still. Jeff had passed away. Yeah. So um, he had one song that needed to be tracked, and you know I was I was able to do that. And uh, you know it was it was uh, it was really interesting. I, you know Jeff was such a influence and such a hero of mine that it was the closest thing that I could get to meeting him. Yeah. And never met him. And I would have much rather had, you know, met him. Yeah. But this was, you know, sort of God's way of saying, hey, you know, I know how much you meant to you here. This is for you. Uh, the other really amazing thing was during, uh, as I said earlier, I had a chance to become close with Les. And uh, so while they were mixing, uh, he let me tag along. Yeah. And when they were doing drum tracks, you know, mixing drum tracks, I remember being in the control room at Greg, Greg Wright Studios in uh, Altamont Springs, Orlando, Florida area. Um, they had the drums all pulled up, and it was like I was he was there. And at the end of the track, you could hear him put his sticks oh, down, and you can hear him breathe and say, yeah, that's cool, let's check that out. You know, that's and it is low, deep voice. So I'm just sitting there in the control room. And, you know, he had been gone a year. He'd only right. been gone, you know, a year. This was in 93. And I was just like, this is amazing. It was like his spirit was there. Yeah. So it was yeah. it was a huge, huge uh, thing for me. Right. You know? It's you like know. that lost recording of a speech by Abraham Lincoln or something. You're <laughs> yeah. like, wow. Yeah. They captured that. Yeah. Or them being right there. And, and, yeah. and it had to be in the studio that clear sound. Oh, it was amazing. It was just, it was... That's amazing, man. Yeah. And as I get older, it's, it's even more special to me to know that that happened. I lived in Florida for four years. Um, after I had done that, I, you know, I actually was also working with this guy named Dennis Lee, who was another really... Uh, yeah, that's who we were working with down at the yeah, Strawberry Fest. Yeah, and that's Dennis where you like, met David Hughes. De yeah. Dennis was also very instrumental in helping me get my act together, um, you know, at that point. And uh, we toured uh, doing fairs and festivals all over the country. And I had met some people in from Nashville yeah. doing those gigs, uh, which was really cool. And it kind of helped me realized that you know my next move was gonna gonna be nashville yeah. and i felt like that in my spirit i felt like that was inevitable you know god was you know moving me here eventually mm -hmm. which was cool so i moved to nashville in 2000 and because of that the dudek uh album credit it opened some doors for me oh wow and i tried to stay in town my whole thing was you know i you know this is my destiny i'm going to be the next paul lime <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> and I got some session work, and I got my butt handed to me. Yeah. I was so out of my league. I was How so green. How did you green. get the, the session started, or was that as a result of the album credit? <clears throat> it was, it, well, the album credit helped. I met some engineers uh, and some players from L.A. that had moved here, too. Okay. So the association with Dudek and the association of playing on that album with Bacaro, you know, that gave me some credibility. Mm -hmm. But my reading wasn't together. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 and um, I was green. You know, I needed more experience. I was 27, and I played a lot. 
and I had good time and good feel, but I loved to play. I was into Weckl and Garibaldi, mm-hmm. and I still love those guys. Yeah. Uh, and on the other flip of the coin, I, I was st- – and always will be, you know, a student of Gad and Picaro and Russ Kunkel and mm-hmm. the Murata brothers, the groove guys yeah. with facility, but just are so articulate and musical in their playing, much like Greg Bissonette, and know what to say and know when not to right. say stuff. And and I, I was immature in that regard. Mm-hmm. So that I think that affected me uh, a little bit as far as uh, not getting more follow-up calls and, you know, not having my reading together. So it was very humbling. Um, and I had to just really bear down and bust my butt yeah. when I finally was here and realized that there was some holes that I needed to fill with yeah. my abilities, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, really super important. Um, my goal was to stay in town and do sessions um, because, you know, um, Shortly after moving here, my wife moved up from Florida, and we got married and started a family. And I didn't want to be away from my kids. Yeah. So I stuck it out for about four years. And I was doing some road work. I had uh, played on a few Joel Saunier records. Yeah. And so I was doing some tour dates with him. Um, I was working with this really cool uh, blues band. It was sort of a band project. It was called the Christian Hastings Band. Uh, Christian Hastings was this uh, great uh, blues, young blues guitar player that lived here in town. And we had a band and we played regionally mm-hmm. and did a record with him. So that was real cool. And um, I had my drums in Cartage and I was, you know, I was sort of doing it. And in 2000, the bottom sort of fell out. The work kind of went down. And, uh, you know, I was at the point where you know, I need to do something. Uh, the uh, the recording scene was sort of shrinking in town. Yeah, you know some of the A guys were doing the B work and the B guys. But you had moved here in two thousand. I had worked. I uh, I had moved here in ninety five. Uh, Did I say two thousand? I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. That makes sense now. Yeah, I moved here in ninety five. Got the Travis Trick gig in two thousand. So almost that five years so to the day. Two thousand. Yeah. That's when that. Yeah. So uh, I had decided. Well, you know what? I just gotta try to make a living. So I started letting everybody know. And I had been here for five years, which was cool, so I knew yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. So I let a lot of folks know, hey, I'm looking to to get a road gig. And most people at that point knew that I was trying to stay in town. So I was very fortunate to have some folks recommend me for some auditions. And uh, I auditioned for a guy named Clay Davidson, and I didn't get the gig. <laughs> I was told I was overqualified. I played too much like the record. I was too clean. They wanted somebody sloppier. And, and I told the manager, I was like, I can play worse, you know. <laughs> yeah. But that, that was all good. And then I, I auditioned for Pam Tillis. I, uh, I lost that to Rich Redmond. Rich Redmond got that gig. Right. That was one of his first gigs. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Rich is a great player and, yeah. and great personality. I think yep. his personality just overwhelmed them. So, yeah. you know, yeah. so he got that gig. Well. And well. then I auditioned for Trisha Yearwood, and I was like the runner-up, at least the uh, band leader, Johnny Garcia, mm-hmm. at the end of the first day of auditions. He said, you know, you're the guy. She really loves your playing. And then uh, Charlie Morgan, mm-hmm. Elton John's drummer, came in yeah. and got the gig. You know, Elton John's drummer. And plus, Charlie's just a great player. I missed him. By this much, uh, he was 
going to be playing with the Orleans? Yes, I saw him play with the Orleans at uh, at the Opry. She's great. That band was awesome. Well, I saw the Orleans, but Charlie wasn't on the gig about two weeks ago. He was in a bicycle accident. No. And um, he's recovering, and I think he's going to be fine. But um, he cracked some bones in his eye socket oh, his Lord. head. Uh, so their original drummer, or the, the drummer that was before Charlie, was on the gig and did a great job. Yeah. And um, I met him. I can't remember his name, but uh, he did a great job. But I miss Charlie just Yeah, hopefully he'll recover. Second. Great. Yeah. Just a great drummer. And, man, it was so cool to finally had, you know, to meet him. And I told him the story. I was like, hey, man, you, you, you got the gig for me. And he just <laughs> sort of laughed. But, you know, it was a blessing in disguise <clears throat> um, because – after that audition, I got an audition with Travis Tritt. Yeah. And had I got one of those gigs, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had such a great run because, you know, after I think one year, Trisha took three years off. What was your state of mind, though, after those three auditions kind of That's went away? That's a great question. I remember I had always been a fan of Trisha Yearwood and still am. I love her music yeah. and I love her, her songs that she's always had a great opportunity to record. And and uh, uh, Sean Fichter was the drummer that was being replaced. And he's such a great player too, man. So just a groove and pocket for days. So tasteful. Um, I remember, and at the time, I had a job. I had a day job, part-time job. I was a courier. Okay. So I drive around town in my courier truck. You were a working drummer. I was definitely a working drummer. <laughs> you know, trying to feed the family. Trademark. I got I got a call on my cell phone and I knew just by the tone of Johnny's voice I didn't get the gig. Yeah. So I remember going home. Hey buddy. Yeah, he goes, Man, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I remember and this is God honest truth, I remember going home and I sat in our living room, nobody was there, and I prayed and I said, You know, God, I know you got something else for me, but right now I'm really heartbroken. Just help me to be positive yeah. to get through this. And I know that you have probably experienced this, and I know I experienced this when I first moved to town. No, was, I've made all my additions, man. Well, I know yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> but but you run into guys that are in this town that are just um, bitter, you know, and I think it's just the industry in general yeah. that that you know they don't feel that they got their 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 due or their fair shake, yeah. or, and they're just you know. And I, music is such a personal and spiritual thing. It's like just a, a spiritual form of communication. That if someone has a bad vibe or don't, or, or just you know. Is is bitter. It sort of comes out in their playing. It comes out in their just just the hang, you know. Yeah. And I'd been around some people like that, and I was like, man, I don't want. That's the furthest thing of who I am. Well, g- going back to what you were saying about Rich Redmond, he bitter. Personifies, Rich is bitter. No, bitter. just no. He personifies his playing. When you watch him play, if you've never met him before, you see him play, and then you meet him. The personality are married yeah and you see that in so many different players i think our playing comes out so much it's a reflection of our personality so much at least for drummers that i know absolutely you know very much absolutely kenny arnoff is a great example and uh greg bissonette had talked about him in his clinic he's like you know we're we are the focus of the stage to uplift everybody else and to drive the band we are 
the focal point. And if you don't have the personality and the confidence to be able to drive and to hold it together, Mm -hmm. if you're a timid personality, Mm -hmm. you're going to play timid. It was a blessing in disguise that I didn't get those other gigs. Yeah. And I was just really asking God to, to, to help me through those, those, that lull because, you know, the, I wanted that gig. You know, I loved Trish Yearwood's music. Yeah. I loved Paul Lime's playing and Eddie Bayer's playing on those tracks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was so close. It was, you know, I had been in Nashville at five years. I was at the five-year mark and... and the fact that I even got an audition was unbelievable, you know? Yeah. So I was so close to achieving what I thought was, you know, my ultimate gig. And then, you know, I got the opportunity to audition for Travis. And that totally, from a career standpoint, took me from just, it, it was a catapult for me. You know, it was yeah. definitely the gig that gave me credibility. Those other previous gigs, um, you know, Tragically, you don't even know who Clay Davidson is anymore. He doesn't exist. Uh, At that point, Pam Tillis had her band together, I think, for two years and then let everybody go and put the new band together. And then after a year, uh, Trisha took three years off. Well, I got the gig with Travis, and it ended up being a nine-year run. Right. And and the other thing, working with him— was uh, a great challenge because stylistically he covered covered so many genres. You know, he mm-hmm. could play R and B. It was a southern rock gig. There was some traditional country. Yeah. There was some blues involved. Yeah. And he, as an artist, you know, he could sing his tail off every night. Yeah, really, the real deal. There's he lots could, of great videos too. Yeah, and and lots he, of great footage of you guys. Yeah, it was a great. It was really an exceptional band. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, he uh, also plays guitar. We would be reminded every night when he would do his acoustic set that he needed none of us. <laughs> he could just sit there and just entertain and sing his tail off with an acoustic guitar. It was yeah. really, uh, it was a great privilege to work with him, and it was a great opportunity growth-wise. In what way? Um, well, I know that having the experience and the confidence that I was able to build playing on stage with him as an artist and all the other great musicians in Travis's band allowed me to grow uh, as a studio musician. Okay. My, my confidence level, and there was an edge that I was able to bring to doing sessions that I didn't have before, I don't think. And I think some of it had to do with confidence. Some of it had to do with, you know, uh, the credibility of who I was working for, you know, because yeah. he's, you know, an amazing artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of unfortunate, but it is the business that, you know, we, I don't want to say we get judged, but, you know, people look at you from a different standpoint when you have a high profile gig. You know, obviously, this town is filled with great players. And I know and you know, it's not really based on playing ability because everyone plays well. And it goes without saying you have to play well. Right. You have to have a great personality. You have to right. be able to get along with people. Yes. A lot of it is luck of the draw, yeah. knowing the right person, being at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and nurturing relationships, you know. Um, not playing too clean. Not, not to play, yeah, not <laughs> playing too sloppy. But it, 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 it comes down to, you know, those, those attributes. And when someone gets a, a, a good gig, you know, all, all of a sudden their value and their credibility goes up. You know, and people look at you you differently, mm. uh, as opposed to guys that might not have a great gig that are fantastic players. There's really no difference. Mm. It's just one person got a, a, a wonderful opportunity, mm. you know, and you and you maximize it and you do the most and and try to get um, as much out of your from your opportunity as you can at, at, for as long as you can. Mm. You know, that's what I tried to do with with the Travis gig, realizing that all gigs come to an end. Yeah. You know. And you're only as good as your last performance. So you have to, it's, you know, I, I equate when I do clinics, I talk about the correlation between sales and music. Yeah. You have to service accounts. You have to let people know that you're there. Mm-hmm. You're still alive. Mm-hmm. You're still out there. Mm-hmm. And it can be really hard. Uh, it's a balancing act, especially if you have family. Right. You know, right. Um, I made a special effort when I was working with Travis to sort of keep my in-town contacts open so I can continue to do the session thing. And and I tried to instigate other playing opportunities. Well, and his schedule allowed you to do that. I was very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. With the Oaks, not so much because they work because they work a lot, but I try to take advantage of the time on the road and book clinics, you know, so I can keep, um, you know, doing that sort of thing. I like uh, sharing information, inspiring young people and older drummers. Yeah. You know, I think that's really How important. How many clinics to... are you doing on average? Or is it hard to say? I'd say I I think I may have done 10 so far this year. I, I may end up with 15 or 16. Okay. You know, um, it just sort of depends on uh, scheduling where we end up playing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, I, I'm so fortunate. I've got... You know, I'm not paid to say this, but I have such great relationships with the companies that I endorse. Mm-hmm. I've been with Gretsch 15 years. I've been with DW Pedals for 15 and Zildjian. And everybody is just really great as far as supporting me being out there. And I try to do a good good job, and I'm you know mm-hmm. a, a goodwill drumming ambassador. Uh, but, you know, it all starts with people that actually believe in you and support you and allow you to be able to do that. Right. You know, and I've, you know, just I can't I can't say enough about, you know, the companies that uh, support that and believe in me. It's really well, cool. And, and, it's a uh, privilege. Did that, did those endorsements come as a result of the Travis Tritt gig? Yes, absolutely. I had, I had um, you know, a drum head deal with a different company and a drumstick deal um, just from you know, um, utilizing the resource of having Summer Nam in Nashville. You know, it was a great opportunity to, to meet reps and stuff. And even though I wasn't established with any, you know, big-time touring act, I was able to meet some people and and uh, build a relationship. Yeah. Uh, so when I did get the Travis Trick gig, I had already known some of these people in place. The groundwork was laid. Yeah, it was nice. great. It wasn't like there was no association. There was no relationship. It wasn't. It wasn't just, you know, some crazy kid calling on the phone saying, hey, I got this gig. People had already known me. And that's that's really uh, an important part of the business, you know, right. relationships and and 
And, and I've heard that before where somebody was saying, introduce yourself. Uh, reach out to these people. You may not have something to offer them. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean, hey, I want to endorse your product. It means, hey, this is what I'm doing, just giving you a just introducing myself, yeah, just making them aware. Because I think there's also the other side of it where if you ask maybe too early or you approach them too early, they may be like, you're not ready. You're not, this is not, and you're, you're, you're wasting right. my time. Yeah. And I think that's been covered as well. But the way you have approached it or the way what worked well for yeah. you was. I got on the radar. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. today now with social media, it's so different. Back then, it was a business card, a handshake, mm-hmm. uh, and you sort of were. Do you think it's more? Uh, do you think it's it's easier now, and thus, it takes that human element away from it, or do you think that it's with social media, it it should be, just I don't know how if I'm asking this question right. I would say it's less personable now. Okay. It's it's not as, uh, you know, there's a positive side with social media where someone actually can look at what's going on in somebody's career. Um, but as far as really getting a vibe and a feel for them from a personality standpoint, yeah, you know, you, you know how it is when you meet somebody, there's, you, you know, you, you, you feed off of their energy. You yeah. know what kind of person they are. Yeah. You know, and... I think companies want they want that good vibe. Yeah. It's not only about being a great player. So if you have a temper tantrum with the bass player, you're not going to post that on YouTube. No, I would probably not recommend that. It would be bad. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, that's the thing. You can you can filter out things. You can have sure. this is my performance. This is this this is that um that I'm going to show and I'm going to share. Yeah. Um everything else you don't know about. But, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you did that for nine years. Is there, yeah. what, how did that come to an end or what was the, you know, um, <clears throat> he found out you were Steelers. Fan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he, uh, he kind of cut work. Um, he had gone through a, a situation where the label that he was on, he was on Sony for the majority of the time I was with him and he signed with an independent label and that label folded and uh, they were going through some difficult times there. And uh, for a few years, we were on salary, so it really didn't matter how much we worked. And then the last year, the salary went away, and uh, we just weren't working very much. And it was sort of, there was writing, writing on the wall. I just, you know, it was time. There was a point, um, I would say, in the... uh, the summer, I left in August of '09. In the middle of the summer, I remember being on stage, and my spirit was just blank. Mm. There was no inspiration; it was gone. Yeah. And I knew it's like, okay, it's it's, it's time, mm. you know. And I, you know, I asked a lot of advice to a lot of people, and everyone thought I was crazy. But I really felt in my spirit, God was leading me out of that gig and i thought you know and I'm, I'm not a real religious person but i am a very spiritual person and i and i i i try to stay in tune and have discernment with the, with those sort of things uh in my life and, and in my career especially um because you know you can't really get 
God's blessing, the best that he has for you, if you're not willing to do what he's pulling you towards right. or pulling you away from. Sure. You know? Sure. So um, my wife was in agreement, and it was insane because that meant, you know, she had to go back to work full time, which that was another great opportunity. She wasn't working full time. She was home with our kids a lot. So there was going to be a really big uh, change in the way we were living. Right. And uh, it was it was a tough transition, but I know I, it needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there was there was some lean times, but uh, strangely enough, I left that gig and I ended up working with Pam Tillis. <laughs> I was just offered the gig, yeah. you know, and then I, I worked with Lee Greenwood. I subbed for a great drummer named Andy Hull. I yeah, was I was yeah. Andy Hull's sub on Lee Greenwood's gig and uh, Ty Herndon, another great artist. Yeah. So when Andy became too busy, I was Andy's sub. So Andy was gracious enough nice. to, to recommend me and put me to work. Um, he's Great I, guy, great. He f- is, and you know, I I got to know him briefly, and just reconnected through Facebook, and haven't um, connected beyond that. But yeah. a- again, there's just maybe a positive of social media to kind of like reconnect with somebody I haven't seen for yeah. a long time. Yeah, real um, busy. But want to uh, busy guy. He's, yeah, he's really lucky, and, and just a fine player and a great guy. So, mm-hmm. um, and then I I worked. I worked for about six months with Joe Diffie uh, during a lull uh, with with the Travis Trick gig. I can't remember, 2000, 2006, 2007. Uh, we had some time off, and I went out and worked with, with Joe Diffie. And a lot of those gigs were based on the fact that I had credibility working with Travis. Nice, you know? yeah. And they all came after I was established, and my name was associated with his. Mm-hmm. Um, but they could see the work that you've done. They could they could hear you and sure, you know, you know, sure. So, so that that was real helpful. Uh, so I got busy right away doing a lot of different stuff, um, and then you know tried to stay in town again right, to do that right, thing, right. which is you know it's it's a tough tough road to hoe, um, and you know having the Travis gig, I was really spoiled to play with a great band and play great songs every night. Yeah. And then to go, and this is no, this is no riff on guys that do sessions. I, you know, everyone, everyone wants to be a session player. Most everyone in this town. Right, right. But I remember a great quote that I read from Larry London, and he said he only liked ten percent of what he ought to record. Mm. So ninety percent of what he recorded, he wasn't really fond of. Mm-hmm. And um, another great drummer that was uh, very inspiring. Uh, when I first moved to town, I met him before I moved to Nashville, actually, Greg Stocky. Uh, he had played with Lori Morgan and Marty Stewart and Billy Bob Thornton's band. And he was one of the drummers that I met before I moved to town uh, that, that when I was living in Florida, I met him. And, and he was really cool about staying in touch with me and helping me when I first moved to town. Okay. And he had told me something because Greg has played on some great records and he's just a fantastic drummer great touch and feel and so musical and always plays the perfect part you know he he sort of had the same opinion that i had that you know staying in town and just playing on demos mostly bad songs is 
sometimes not really overly inspiring, especially when you go from the gig with Travis Tritt and mm-hmm. you're playing these mm-hmm. hits mm-hmm. every night. Right. Uh, so I knew at that point that I really wanted to be able to have a balance, you know, yeah. ha- you know, and uh, during that time, it's it was somewhat hard and it still is. Yeah. You know, it, uh, there are more drummers that are balancing between the two than when I first moved to town, like in 95, either you were a studio guy or a road guy. Yeah. Now that's changed a considerable amount. It has. But the guys that are established that stay in town, those are the guys that get the calls, you know? Right, right. So it's hard to really to still break in. I know, know there's times when people get a road gig and they say, well, don't tell anybody that I'm out. Yeah. I don't want it to, you know. Yeah. But then you turn on TV and you see them on Good Morning America. Like, yeah. Sorry, man. And I, I can see you. I did that when I <laughs> when I first got the, the Travis gig, you know, because there was a few producers and a few session leaders that I didn't want to know that I was away and you know and and unfortunately when they found out they just stopped calling they just thought well he's going to be gone all the time which you know whatever but you made an effort to keep in touch yeah I really tried and I still I still try you know you have to uh it's not it's not easy sometimes but you know you can't expect what you don't do if you want people to know that you're still alive you got to be banging on their door Right. You know. So the Oak Ridge Boys, uh, excuse me, the Oaks. The Oaks. <laughs> the Oaks. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, that came up as a result of the bass player that yes. you knew from Travis. Yeah, gig. Scotty Simpson, great player. Great, yep. great. And so he's on that gig now? Yeah. Okay, he's been doing that. Um, and, and we sometimes talk about endorsements. I just want to make sure that uh, you mentioned that you mentioned Gretsch and Zildjian. Um, DW Pedals. Mm-hmm. Um, who was your? Who else? Evans. Evans Drumheads. Evans Drumheads. And Vader Drumsticks. And Vader Drumsticks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes we get into um, those looking for advice on getting into endorsements. Um, I don't know if anything more needs to be said. You had that relationship started. Yeah, we sure. discussed that, and then the Travis Trip gig, because now you had something to offer them as well. Yeah, without a doubt. That that that. Okay. I also use Pearl Hardware too. I should mention that. That's that's sort of a, you know, uh, there's a few guys in town that were fortunate enough to have just hardware deals. I know myself and Pat McDonald, and I believe we're the only two left, but there was a short period of time in the early part of early 2000s where uh, artist relation guy, artist relation assistant to Mike Ferris, uh, Who's art, Mike Ferris is the artist relations head artist relation guy for Pearl, but Derek Wolford uh, was his assistant, and he was very instrumental in getting guys in Nashville that just wanted to use hardware mm-hmm. uh, recognized and, and signed up as endorsers just mm-hmm. for hardware, which was really cool. Uh, and I still still use their stuff primarily. At the time when I first signed with Gretsch, they didn't have much hardware. Mm-hmm. You know, they had Gibraltar, and I wasn't crazy about it. Gibraltar has made a lot of improvements yeah. since then. Mm-hmm. But and I was always a Jeff Picaro fan of the rack. The rack yeah. system is still the bomb. Yeah. So I wanted my kit to look like Jeff's, even if it was Gretsch. Well, that, and you that's know? another thing I, w- I wanted to bring up was in this age where, and I, I play a four-piece kit primarily, mm-hmm. sometimes a second floor time, but that's been my setup for the last 15, 16 years. Mm-hmm. Your setup 
it seems I'm trying to remember. Did you have three? I did at one point when I was with Travis. I did eight by ten, eight by twelve, nine by thirteen. Basically, the Picaro setup. Yeah. And I did that for a long time. And um, in 2010, I hurt. I, I ruptured my Achilles tendon, so mm. I couldn't use my right foot. Wow. So I dropped the 13 and I set up an X hat where the 13 would be, and I used a slave pedal. So I was using my left foot to play the kick drum, and I just used an X hat to play. So I did that for a good six months at least, you know, for a while. Did you ever use your left foot as a— No, it just—it stood—it just—I couldn't move it. I couldn't move it. And there was a good six months of recovery time. Wow. That I had to go through. Yeah, it was a it was a really rough rough time for me. Um, Did you tell anybody in the band? Or you well, were just like... well, you know, I, at the, at that point, I was with uh, Pam Tillis, so they were very gracious uh, and said, you know, the gig is yours. Just let us know when you can come back. So obviously, I had to take a, a lot of time off, um, and I wasn't working at all. Uh, there was a few gigs around town that I was able to do when I was finally able to walk and drive. Wow. I had to wear a boot. And uh, so, you know, I did a few gigs, you know, just to, to, just to be able to say I could, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a great time. I de- well, it wasn't a great time. It was a, gr- a good time to develop my left foot. Right. You know, right. Um, so that was real interesting. So when I did that, I got so used to an offset 10, the 12 being in front of me as my primary tom, mm-hmm. and the hi-hat being where it was, and then my ride cymbal didn't move, and then I had two floor toms. So I uh, I really liked the feel of how that mm-hmm. setup was, mm-hmm. and I liked the spread between the toms, you know, the two-inch, right, you know, two, right. 10, 12, 14, 16. So this part of this year... Um, Gretch sent me a 9x13 mm-hmm. to match my kit. And I set it up, and I tried it for two months. And it was great. And I just mm-hmm. threw it up there, and I practiced a little bit at home. And it made me think different. I liked the middle tom, you know, the 13 being the middle tom, tonality-wise, between mm-hmm. the 12 and the, the 10, 10, and then the, tw- the 14 and 16. 16. And it was cool, but I just didn't feel as, at home like I did. Interesting. With the ride symbol where it was. And it wasn't so much the placement of the ride symbol. Um, I just, you know, it just had a different uh, vibe. Everything was so comfortable the way it was. It's amazing how that can change yeah. everything. And, you know, it was me trying to be Jeff again, you know. And, uh, you know, I love Jeff, but I'm Dave Northrup. I'm not Jeff Picaro, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute. Really? It's very obvious, you know. <laughs> Look at my discography. <laughs> you know. So it's, it's – Well, I, I, that's what I was wondering is is, is – it seemed that the setup was sim- very similar to Jeff's. Yeah, it was with the, with the thirteen for sure, and even without the thirteen, it's still very very similar, yeah. you know. Um, but it's just there's just a different flow on the kit. Uh, I I remember seeing a great DVD. I love Billy Ward. Great. Yeah, he lives here in town. I had a chance to meet him one time. He lives I just, in town. Yeah, yeah. You should probably try to hook up with oh, him. I have I his know. information, Billy. I'm giving you a plug. Oh, I would love to talk. Yeah. I love his book. So oh my yeah, gosh, and I, I had wonderful. one of his videos, and he talked about you know agronomics <coughs> and, and your drum kit and how yeah. the way he has his setup is he's able to move, uh, flowing his hands and just moving his torso around the kit, yeah, and not having to extend 
his elbows, mm -hmm. which makes a great deal of sense. And the way I have my kit set up now is sort of based on that principle. And, and including the 13 was taking me out of that, mm -hmm. that ability just mm -hmm. to move freely with just slightly moving my torso and not even extending my elbows, you know? You know what's so funny? It was, it's interesting that um, I, my son and I went to, saw, to see Rush this last tour, yeah, and Neil awesome. comes out with two kits. Uh, you know, the, the one he's been using for the last 20 years and then the, the, the first one. And, and just ergonomically, you know, I'm thinking, he changed all that stuff. And then to see this old kit that he brings out for the fans. Remember this kit? Remember this big silver? Wow. And just like, that's got to be crazy to do the first half of the show on this kit that works well, that got him going. You yeah. Know, through his, with lessons and transition all the things that he with, transitioned to yeah. that, to going back to this. It's, yeah, that's insane. Weird, that's really cool like, to be well, able that's to. That's show business for you. Yeah, man. You it's, know? it's great to be able to to be that well versed and, and play as and to have great on set both your stuff. What's that? And have somebody set your stuff up. Yeah, that's real. Check yeah. The two biggest kits in the world. <laughs> I know, that's awesome. I became a student of Jeff Picaro, if you will, just because of all the tracks that he played on that I gravitated towards because of his feel and his groove. One of the one of the tragedies I think today with young drummers is everyone is just after a download where our generation we bought records. Mm -hmm. And I I would say probably a good 80% of what I own I bought because of who played on it. Right. And that goes into researching mm -hmm. you know who's playing on stuff. Right. And that's part of your responsibility. It's part of our tutelage as players. Yeah to know who's playing on what yeah. and that's um it's sort of an absence well you know, you know today which is unfortunate and that brings me up to a point i, I had a, a a young drummer tanner and i don't remember tanner's last name uh, but he reached out to me because he's been listening to the podcast and he's from arizona and he wants to move to nashville well he and a friend of his were in town visiting and he goes hey can we meet for coffee and just want to pick your brain as well. I'll tell you what I know, and then we can chat about whatever else. Yeah, sure. Uh, but it was real nice uh, for him to ask, and we sat down and we talked. And we t and I mentioned some drummers that he didn't know, and he wants to get into the scene in Nashville. But he also said that he discovered Nick Buda through the podcast because of the subtitle again, uh, Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. And he goes. And he's 22, 23. And he goes, I like Taylor Swift, man. I was like, cool. cool. Well, he seems like that age where, you know, he could probably wrap his head around uh, what she was doing, all the different records. He goes, I love this one record. And then to find out that Nick was on it and put the pieces together. But he didn't know that before. Yeah. Because of the download. And I said, well, listen, here's what you need to do, man. Find these records or whatever's on your phone or your you know, your iPod or whatever you're listening to music, go to all music. Research. Research, find yeah. out. And then, because that's what we did. Yeah, we, we had studied. the CDs, we had the records, yeah. we had that. And I was reading the liner notes constantly. Me too. Who's on here? Who's Where this? it was recorded. You know, right. producer. I got into producers and yeah. sounds and stuff. And You have uh, to take that extra step. Yeah, now. without a doubt. And I know that there's a lot of listeners to this podcast that are that are his age. And, um, and and trying to 
get advice, but that's how you follow and digest the style and Mm -hmm. identify the drummer with the style and the feel. So I, I'm a, I'm a Mike Stern fan because of Dennis Chambers and Peter Erskine. I'm a John Schofield fan because of Dennis Chambers. Um, I'm a Joe Sample fan because of Omar Hakeem. Mm-hmm. You know, these players, and, you know, Dave Weckl, of course, I'm a Chick Corea fan, yeah. you know, uh, Kelly Uta fan because of uh, some of the first recordings I heard of John Patitucci, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or, or rather I'm a Patitucci fan because of some of the recordings that he did uh, with, with Vinny. And I was following these drummers. They were huge influences on me. Uh, and on my playing, and I wanted everything I could get my hands on, mm-hmm. you know, because those guys, I was gravitating towards mm-hmm. them. And if there's music that young players are hearing today, they need to do, do the same thing. You know, there's Josh Freese is all over the place. Abe LaBoreal Jr. is yep. all over the place. Yep. Um, uh, Matt Chamberlain. I'm a huge Matt Chamberlain fan. They're all over the place. These it guys are up pl- in every podcast. Yeah, they're, they're playing on all these records, and <laughs> young players need to know these guys, man. Oh, I'm a it's... Fiona Apple fan because of Matt. Chamberlain. Absolutely, me too. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, Steve Jordan is another one. Oh, yeah, you know, it's yeah. just like my gosh. Yeah, you know, it, you you know, it's 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 part of your responsibility as a player, and it's only going to enhance your ability to 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 further your education as a player. Right. You know, stylistically. Yeah. You know. There's sometimes uh, you can find a player and the artist that it, it's just a joy. When you listen to Abel Boreal play on those live records with, uh, you know, Paul McCartney, you're thinking, well, this is the best of both worlds. I'm listening yeah. to the Beatle and I'm listening to Abe and the combination of the two is tell you, amazing. One of the best records I have with Abe is a Steve Lukather album. It's called Ever Changing Times. Yeah, isn't there some videos of him recording that record? Yeah, I think there might be. Yeah. But talk about a guy that, that really took his influence of Jeff Beccaro and put his twist wow. on it. Because he, you know, it's Abe's intensity and, and gi- ginormous groove, yeah. but with the articulation of Beccaro. It's yeah. really exceptional okay. record. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I yeah. remember seeing... Uh, him tracking something for Steve Lukather. And, yeah, it probably uh, was that. that. Yeah, yeah him and, and, and talk about personality and the sounds of drums, the marriage between the two. To me, when I see him, just I could see Abe walking down the street and, and be like, I can hear that guy. I can hear his groove. I can yeah. guess what it's going to be because yeah. it's, just, it's, it's big. It's just, you're describing him. Well, I've never met him, but I, I've... I've I know some people that have, and he's just got such a great personality. Yeah. He's just such a humble yeah. and, you know, vibrant guy. And that yeah. comes out in his playing. It goes back to that thing we were talking about. You know, I think players play their personality. Right, 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 right. Well, during your clinics, do you ever get into, like, hey, if you want to make a career out of this, here's a couple things to keep in mind, or here's a couple things on a checklist you want to mm-hmm. mark off. Yeah. Um, very similar to what Greg talked about last night. Um, if you want to make a living doing this, you, you have to be able to play a lot of different styles, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're practicing a lot of swing that you're going to become a great swing player or you're going to get a lot of swing gigs. Mm-hmm. But the uh, vocabulary 
that you get to establish playing uh, a different genre of music only enhances perhaps the genre that you really like to play. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're not a great shuffle drummer, well, you, you can't really work. But spending time yeah. being able to shuffle well will help your rock playing if that's yeah. who you are. Cross-pollinating. Yeah, man. Cross-pollinating. You know? Talked about that. So it's so important, mm -hmm. you know, um, especially if you want to even remotely consider doing sessions. You know, mm -hmm. on one session alone, as you know, you know, you might have to do a, a traditional train beat with brushes. Yeah. You may have a, an open hi-hat, intense rock groove. Mm -hmm. You may have something with a little bit of a contemporary flavored uh, Latin thing with, you know, maybe a samba, mm -hmm. you know. You might have something that's more of a, a blues, raw shuffle, mm -hmm. a yeah. two-handed thing. If you don't have experience or background playing those styles of music, then you're not going to really excel at a, a at a session that will call for all that. Right, right. You know, so it's important to be able to. And it's super fun. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. so cool. I worked with a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who was uh, doing some co-producing and uh, engineering as well for a songwriter, and she was just all over the map. And he's like, you know, you maybe want to kind of consolidate some of these styles and you know for this one record and i was like no 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 let her do it this is fun we're yeah. doing you know we're doing brushes and we're treating the drums with tape and all this stuff and then we're just rocking out the next thing that's cool and pulling yeah. up, you know it's like just I, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself just just let her go yeah let her do know, her thing yeah this is killing me that's really cool. um i was watching a video of uh, clinic that you were doing in the clinic and i think it's a few years old there was that side video or that window where it had your foot oh yeah yeah right on and yeah. and it was cool and and one of the things you were doing you were doing that slide thing we, and we don't talk a lot about we don't get into gear we don't get into technique but i have to just make an aside to this and try and figure out if you are consciously have a technique that you use with your right foot that you worked on, especially since your injury, because yeah. now I, I'm seeing this in new light, and maybe it was before your injury. Yeah, it was, it was definitely before my injury. Okay. Um, that was just something I picked up from the Jeff Picaro video, you know, okay. uh, the Hot Licks video that he, he, he yeah. initially put out. Now it's on Hudson Video, I believe. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, he had a technique where he... He would slide his foot up the pedal mm -hmm. to get fast doubles or diddles or whatever you mm -hmm. want to call. Um, and I sort of adopted that from watching him. And uh, I tried to, like, maybe – I don't want to sound, you know, full of myself or take it to the next level or just really work hard on it. And I never had – I didn't have much time or desire for the double pedal thing because you know the guys that i were, was really into was you know, was gad which i know he he uses it a little bit um and then bonham and Stuart copeland which i know he does a little bit now and picaro who never used a double pedal so i i really tried to develop my single foot as much as i could that's why I think I'm asking is because I'm coming from the same spot. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little selfish here. I, mm -hmm. No, it's I, I've never I, – I, I just bought a double pedal recently because it was just 
it was a it was a hundred bucks for DW three thousand. Oh, that's killer! And so I'm like, I'll put it in my practice work room, and if it, I need not? to use it for teaching, it'd be great. And I had fun with it for a while, but really, I draw inspiration from many drummers that don't do the double pedal mm-hmm. thing, and and um, so I've never spent a lot of time on it. I love players that can do it really well. Me too. The double pedal. Me too. Um, I love it. I Simon love it. Phillips, Steve yeah, it's, Smith, it's, guys, it's, those guys. Yeah, Pat McDonald. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. It's very fun. Um, but I I want to make sure that right foot is just killed. Yeah, me too. And, and kind of what you were doing to get it to that point. You know, I had a, I think it was, it might have been Frank Briggs that uh, I had this, this practice routine when I lived in Florida and I still do it now to sort of maintain, but I would take, uh, on my foot, I would do with a click, tra- uh, a metronome singles, doubles, triplets, and 16th notes. And I would go back and forth. I would do a grouping of, of, uh, singles. Then I go to, do- uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Eighth notes, okay. quarter notes, triplets, then 16th. Gotcha. And I would do it at various tempos and, and varying intensity levels. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and I would also do the same with my left foot with, with the hi-hat just to sort of spend time. You know, we spend so much time developing our hands. Right. I tried to do the same thing with my, with my feet. Right. Not so much to be able to play blazing fast, but to be able to have endurance with my feet. And I think because of that, I was able to develop some of the, the fast uh, sliding up and down uh, footwork that you know Jeff Picaro did and that I was able to steal from him from his his video and I play I play that a lot but with with the Oaks gig I find myself floating back and forth between heel up and heel down mm-hmm. and it just sort of depends on the song mm-hmm. and the dynamic of the song yeah. Yeah. you know uh, so you know somebody in my clinic once asked me do you do heel up or do you do heel down? And I said, yes, I do both. It just sort of depends. <laughs> yes, next? <laughs> yeah. You, no know, <laughs> you know, and I know that I think with the Travis Trick gig, I majority played heel up all the time because it was really intense. Yeah, yeah. Even when I did, you know, the, the, the ballad stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and that was just kind of habitual. But uh, I think as I've got a little older, uh, I think I've relaxed my foot a little bit more. And it may have had something to do with my, my, my accident and coming back mm-hmm. recovery-wise. Is there um, something you did recovery-wise once you got out of the, the boot? Yeah, you know, it was, it was a tough time, man. I got out of the boot, and I put my foot on the kick drum pedal and couldn't move it. Oh, yeah. It was really emotional. It was hard. Mm. Uh, and I just started slowly, you know. It's sort of a blur now, but it was just a matter of starting over. The good thing was that the the surgeon that I had was awesome. And he said, you know, you're going to have muscle memory. It, it's going to come back. But at first, you have um, the fact that you have muscles that you haven't been using for a long time. And it's, you're just going to have to take it slow. So I had obvious, uh, the obvious exercises that I had to do to... Were you doing you know, just your foot or were you also moving your hands as well? I would move my hands too. Combined. You know? Yeah. And it was, it was a slow process, but I, you know, started by just doing singles and then slow doubles. Say and, singles, you mean quarters to eights to yeah, sixteenths? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes just playing four on the floor, yeah. you know, quarter notes. Yeah. And in... And, uh, you know, it was a slow, slow process. The cool thing is, you know, Nashville, (laughs) 
such an incredible town. I had a lot of people reach out to to me and and help me. A great drummer and great personal friend, Austin Cucuruto, uh, and a guy named Trey Cordell, two great drummers and great friends. They organized a benefit for me oh, to help wow. my family. You yes. know, yeah, it was very humbling. Yeah, you know, very humbling yeah. time in my life. But you know, uh, I would say at the end of every tragic situation you if if you're able to pull yourself through it or allow god to help you pull through it mm-hmm. you become stronger on the other end mm-hmm. it's not a lot of fun while you're going through it no no but uh especially that when that's what you do oh yeah yeah, yeah. and there was there was it was it was a it was a tough time but i'm happy to say that my foot's you know as strong as it's ever been I, you know there's no I, I run into people it's like hey man how's the foot i'm like well it's been five years it's good you know yeah yeah uh, Did you notice anything foot-wise, like shoes or anything like that, that you had to? No, you know, maybe initially, you know, I, I would. I know some guys wear those Skechers with the really small sole. I've always liked thick soles. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, so I remember watching Dennis Chambers' videos, and he used to have those big fat Nike high tops with the big <laughs> sole. So I remember trying that. I was like, man, I like, I like, you know, yeah, some yeah. separation between my yeah. my actual foot and the pedal. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so nothing nothing out of the ordinary right you right, know right. so the rest of this year you guys are you still doing a christmas tour yes okay yes all right i was talking to a friend last night and we've got 21 dates in october 21 dates in november and 22 dates in december and that's just so that's over 60 dates just in the last part of the year and we've already done 70 74. It's amazing. Yeah. And it is insane. I equate it to it's sort of the Grateful Dead of old people. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And, you know, you can't help but think these guys have been around 42 years. Dying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, and and the, uh, the fan base is, strangely enough, obviously you have the diehard older Oaks fans, mm-hmm. but you have a whole new generation of people mm-hmm. that come out. And it's insane. They pack places all the time. Oh, you guys, yeah, it was huge there. It's yeah. it's nuts. Yeah. Some some of the people we would see at the Strawberry Fest, we could we could get kind of close. We couldn't get close with the Elkridge boys. We had to, we it, had to sit back. It was it's just a sea of white hair, you know. <laughs> but it's you know it's great, man. And and next year is looking to be as busy. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. they are actually. This is a really cool uh, side note. Well, it's not really a side note. It's actually a major thing for them. They're being inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame in October. Oh my gosh! And a lot of somebody said, "Man, that probably that'll be great. That'll be a, you know, probably accelerate the workload." I'm like, I hope not. I don't know how it's going to accelerate the workload. They work enough as it is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But it's it's a it's really a a a cool honor to be around guys that have been in the business so long, and to see how down to earth. And cool, they're so approachable. It's like you know, working for your your like it's working for a family business. They're yeah. all just awesome, you know. That's man, and that that goes so far. Yeah, it's really it's really, really, especially if you're going to be away from your family and doing all these other things. Yeah, it, it, that it, vibe has to be great. Yeah, they make it easy. I, you're slammed, man, and you're and and just knowing your schedule, uh, just it means a lot more. And that you took the time to come oh. here and talk to me, man. I appreciate I'm, it. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this. I thank you for, for having me, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited yeah. Uh, to, to share. 
I just I think people are gonna love it. So cool, man. Thanks, David. Thanks, dude. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Yeah. So there you go. There was David Northrup. Uh, It was a great interview for me. Uh, After the interview, after I hit stop on the recorder, we ended up talking for about another half an hour. Uh, I just talked about some personal concerns, and and David shared some advice that was really awesome. And, of course, halfway through the conversation, I'm thinking, uh, this should be on tape. So I apologize I didn't get that, but uh, David was a great hang and just uh, offered some really good advice, and I hope that you guys uh, benefit from it as much as I did. It was great. Um, Many, many thanks to Mike Jackson again for his help in getting this together. Also want to thank his brother Robert for going to Indianapolis with me yesterday. We had a great interview with um, at the Percussive Art Society headquarters in Indianapolis with Jeff Hartso, an old friend of mine. We talk about PASIC 2015 coming up in November, and that interview is going to be out soon with some video. Very excited about that. Got a quick uh, Twitter that I want to read from Kevin Murphy. You might know Kevin from one of our past interviews. Um, He says, At Working Drummer, Morrow is the dope show. Love it. He and Q are the Yodas of my drumming world. Nice choice. Hashtag Legos. Hope you all understood what he was saying. Talking about Greg Morrow in that interview. Uh, Keep those tweets coming. Comments on YouTube. Uh, comments on the iTunes page. That's really helpful. So anyways, uh, everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, hope to see you around. See ya.